Well, your elder wasn't very pleased, so I'll try it again. Good morning, church. My name is Jim Whittle. My wife and I, Sherry, she's right there. We live in Atlanta in the suburbs on the western side. If you think of Six Flags, you'll know where we live. You may have been there. And uh, we work for Equipping Leaders International. As Mark said, we're training leaders in India. Somewhere between 17,000 and 30,000 people a day are coming to faith in South Asia. The Holy Spirit is moving with great power, and uh, we just seem to be along for the ride most days. It's like getting a tiger by the tail. This morning, we're in John chapter 6, if you want to turn there. John chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 35. Now, I love bread. I don't know about you, but I love to eat bread. If you look at my waistline, you can see that I've had plenty over the years. You could say I'm a carbophile. I, I like bread any way you can get it. I love Krispy Kreme donuts. In fact, I think there's a chip in my car that knows when the hot now sign is on so that the car, I don't even have to turn the wheel, it just turns itself into the Krispy Kreme. And I was thinking today that if somebody developed an app that sent out notifications when the hot now sign was on that their sales would go way up i love uh, crescent rolls and i like cake and and cornbread and uh, waffles and and pancakes i love those rolls at logan steakhouse and you know who has really good bread is red lobster their rolls are to die for and if I'm desperate enough, I'll even eat a Pop-Tart. And uh, when I get back from India each time, one of the first things I do is I get biscuits with gravy because they don't make anything in an oven there. They, they have a different kind of bread. They have uh, chapati and roti, and they have butter naan and garlic naan, and my favorite is puri. Um, but, you know, if I have to, I'll just come home and eat toast with butter on it. Because I, I love bread. For 25 years, it took me 25 years, Sherry and I have been married 35 years, it took me 25 years to get her to buy butter instead of margarine. And then it took two years for me to convince her that the butter should be left out on the counter all the time so that it would be always soft when you put it on the bread. You see, I'm a carbophile. So it's no surprise to me that Jesus says right here, that he's the bread of life. Let's read this together. John 6, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall, will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, I want to share two things with you from this passage this morning. Two things about the gospel that I want to show you. And the first is the Father's gifts to Jesus. Now, can you believe that Jesus says this right here? He says, whoever comes to him, whoever trusts in him, he will never drive away. He will never cast out. Now, that is astounding. Because, you see, all of us fear rejection. You know, a salesman's going to get up tomorrow morning. He's going to start his phone calls for the week. He's going to try to set up his appointments all the time, trying to, to get into somebody's office, somebody's warehouse, to share his product with a potential customer, wondering who's going to answer the phone, who's going to say yes, secretly nervous about whether he's putting the, pushing the right buttons or whether he'll be rejected. Or, or how about that young man in high school? who sits in homeroom, and there's the prettiest girl who sits two rows over, and he just wants to talk to her so bad. He, he knows he's not brave enough to call her, but if, maybe he could just text her and say hello. But in the end, he's so afraid that he, he doesn't do it because he's too overwhelmed by the potential of rejection. Or how about a mother who sees her baby for the first time and and she just adores that baby but every mother secretly fears that after doing everything within their power to love and to care for their 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 little child that that child will grow up and respond with disdain and arrogance and walk away as an adult she she so wants her child to love her in return or how about those of you who are looking for jobs? You know, in the economy we've had the last six or eight years, a lot of people are looking for jobs. And if you've looked, you know that everything's online now. You, you don't go and see a person anymore. You get on the computer and you fill out an online application. Now, I know that makes the process more efficient, but I'm convinced that really it's a way for the job to, to reject people without ever having to see us face to face. And then how about visitors? Maybe some of you are visiting the church this morning and, and you come to church wondering if you're going to be accepted. Especially if people know your secrets. Will they accept you here? You see, there are countless ways in which we reject each other's ideas, each other's thoughts, each other's opinions, our work, our cooking, our educational choices for our children. You see, in a 24-hour news cycle, we live in a culture of constant criticism and rejection. It's a heavy load that hangs over all of us. And in the middle of that, Jesus says, those who come to me... I will never reject. What amazing freedom and security you would have if you knew that you were never rejected. You see, that's the incredible grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never cast us out. You know, it's the same message that God gave Joshua when it was time for Joshua to take over for Moses. Imagine you're Joshua 
And Moses has been leading the people of God for 40 years through every valley and every high. And now all of a sudden it's your turn to lead. Don't you think Joshua was just a little bit nervous about taking over, wondering if the the people would follow him the way they followed Moses. It's the same way I felt when I planted a church almost 25 years ago in Melbourne, Florida. We were planting a daughter church from not New Covenant, but Covenant Presbyterian of Palm Bay. And all the time I was wondering, will will they like me like they do Pastor Dan? Will, Will they transfer their loyalty and allegiance? Will they respect me and support me? And so you see, Joshua's wondering that. Will the people of God follow me like they did Moses? And you see, the truth is, it doesn't matter. What the Lord says to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31, he's the, 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 the Lord himself, Jehovah himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You see, fear, fear leads to discouragement. Fear is a result of the unknown. Fear is a result of independent self-reliance. Will others let you down? Will you let your family down? Will you let yourself down? And and the Lord doesn't calm our fears by telling us the future, though some of us wish he would. Nor does he say everything's going to be all right. Instead, he's like a dad with a little child on a stormy night. He comes to us and he says, I'm here. I'm here. And, And that's what makes everything good. In fact, He says, I'll be out in front. You don't even have to lead this thing. What incredible assurance. What awesome security. Your elders just had a retreat. And the Lord says to them, I'm out in front of this whole church. I'm leading this thing. That's incredible security. But do you know what our biggest fear is? Our biggest fear is the fear of death. Death is the great adventure. Death is the great unknown. And the gospel doesn't just take away the possibility of rejection by God. The gospel also guarantees us eternal life. Look again at verse 38. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, I will lose none. Now, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but lots of people in the church and in the culture are into the into the end times. We've been talking about this, I think, for over 150 years since the beginning of the Millerites in the 1840s who went out and stood on a mountain waiting for Jesus to come back. They sold everything, went to the mountain, and Jesus didn't come back. What's incredible to me is that Miller convinced them all to do it a second time the next year. And I have a book on my on my shelves in my office that I keep as a keepsake. It's called 88 Reasons for the Rapture in 1988. Have you seen that one? It's by Edgar Wisnant. He was wrong. And so he figured he calculated by a year off. So the next year he 
wrote 89 reasons for the rapture in 89. I don't think that one sold quite as well. <laughs> he was wrong again. And then you remember the big millennial push. All our computers were going to die on January 1st, 2000. The next millennium, the great unknown. And then 2012, I think, was the end of the world. And the latest end of the world was in September. I was in India at the time. I told my wife that, that I would see her in heaven when I left for for India in September, because of course the end of the world was going to happen, was it the 20th or the 21st? I, I can't even keep track of these anymore. Here's what's important about the end of the world. Jesus is telling us that everyone who believes and trusts in him will not be rejected and will not be lost for any reason whatsoever. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you belong to him and to the Father, then he will not lose you. He will raise you up into heavenly places. You see, we are love gifts from the Father to the Son. Because of the great love that the Father has for his Son, he gave us his love gifts to the Son before the beginning of time. Ephesians 1 says, For he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. <clears throat> in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So I want you for just a moment to imagine that it's Christmas morning. Now, I don't know what Christmas was like growing up in your house, but my family lived in a tri-level, so the the, the family room stuff was on the first level. Then the middle level was the, the, the living room and the kitchen. And up here was the bedrooms. And so Christmas was in the living room. And so we, would, we could stand up above the steps about this high and see Christmas on Christmas morning. And I was an early riser as a kid. Uh, I got up at 5.30 most mornings. My parents taught me early how to turn the television on and go sit while, while they, everybody else slept. And I just remember Christmas morning, I usually woke up about 3.30 or 4. My poor father, I'm sure he had just gone to bed at 1 o'clock. But it, it's Christmas morning, and you've given your 10-year-old son a shiny new red bicycle. Now, in my day, it would have been a Schwinn 10-speed. And he comes to the top of the steps, and he sees the 10-speed down there by the tree, and he runs down the steps, and he knocks the bike over, and he throws a temper tantrum, screaming, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I wanted. I wanted an iPad mini. I wanted an iPad mini. Imagine the shame and the dishonor and the anger. On the other hand, picture that same son as he sees the bike, and he runs down the, the steps and he flings himself into your arms yelling, I love you, I love you, Dad, thank you, I love you. You see, the Father gives us as love gifts to the Son. And there is no way that the Son would ever reject those gifts. They are gifts of love and he thanks the Father for us. In fact, Jesus embraces the Father for giving us to him. And John 10, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. 
You know, it's not an accident here that he calls us sheep. Sheep are the dumbest farm animals there are. They're helpless. They need protection. Mostly from themselves. A little bit from the scavengers and the wolves, but mostly from themselves and the stupid things they do to get into trouble. So imagine a shepherd boy like young King David. He's out watching the flock for his dad, and he comes home to his father Jesse one day, and he says, Great day in the fields, Pop. We only lost three sheep today. No, no, that's a terrible day. In fact, David was willing to offer his own life, killing the lion and the bear to keep the sheep safe. And that's what happens in the gospel, beloved. The Father gives us as love gifts to the Son. It would be a dishonor for the Son to reject those gifts, and it would be further dishonor for the Father to, to let any for, for the Son to let any go. It would be a failure to lose any. So the good shepherd, he gives his life to keep all the sheep and to keep us for eternity. So therefore, it would be a dishonor for the Father to let any go for whom the Son has laid down his life for. Jesus says no one can snatch us from their hand. Isn't that good? That's why Philippians 1, Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Beloved, we are not rejected, and we are not lost, and that's what happens to those who put their faith alone in Christ alone. Now, how good is that? It's so good. And yet, apparently it's not good enough for the crowd because they grumble and they complain because they know who he is and they know who his parents are and they've missed the whole grace of God in the middle of it. And that takes us to the second thing I wanted to show you is that the Father draws us. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered them, Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. That's from Isaiah 54. They will all be taught by God. Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, the crowd is thinking that Jesus must be some kind of arrogant fool, claiming that he's from heaven when he's really from Nazareth, and we know his parents. But Jesus doesn't argue with them. Instead, Jesus drives in deeper, and he says to them, resurrection is only by grace. Did you see that? And then he quotes from Isaiah 54 as a double proof of what he's saying. that One, that he is God... And two, that the divine plan has always been that only those who are taught by God will be raised up at the last day. Do you see that? Jesus says that no one can come to him in faith and receive eternal life unless the Father first draws them. You see, Jesus is the bread of life. He's the true bread from the, whom the Father has sent into the world to give everlasting life. The Father gives us as love gifts to the Son, and He will not reject those gifts, and He will lose none of them as well. Now, what do you say to that? Well, any rational person would say, I'm in. 
But you see, reason doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. The Jews heard all of this, and instead of being amazed at the love and salvation of God, instead they grumble and they murmur. You see, it's idolatry to think that God is somehow simply watching us and waiting for us to get it right. Even when we pray, it's His idea. Prayer begins in heaven, the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes to us, and then we pray back to the Father. Even prayer is His idea. God is not waiting for us to somehow jump into the gift box so that He can give us to Jesus. He puts us there. And the Jews think that they are evaluating and judging Jesus, and it's the other way around. And so Jesus, He stomps on their unbelief, not with judgment, but with grace. Jesus tells them, you don't like it? You don't like it that the resurrection is a result of the Father giving you to me? Well, get this, you can't like it unless the Father gives you to me. You know, that's why Paul says in Romans 3 that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So you see, Jesus is telling us here that salvation is a matter of sheer grace. You can't make yourself a Christian. Only the Father can do that. You see, the religions of men, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or what we see in India and Hinduism, the religions of men all tell you to get your life together and be a moral person so that you can be like us and get the reward. In India, we see this all the time. If you have a, an abundant life, if you're wealthy, then it's because of God's blessing and it's because you've been righteous and you deserve it. Well, Jesus says you can't earn your salvation. You can't earn it because you can't want it. And even if you could want it, you couldn't earn enough righteousness to make it count. You know, in Atlanta, we have the Atlanta Braves. And if you watch a baseball game, you'll notice that whether the runner is two steps from the bag at first base or it's a boom-boom play, he's still out. And no matter how good you are, no matter how close to the bag you get, if you're not perfect, you're out. And so Jesus says, only those who come to the Father who the Father draws and comes to me, will receive eternal life. You know, I like to use a food illustration to make this point about grace. Now, what food is it that you will never eat? Now, I know some of you think you'll eat anything. That just means you haven't been very many places in the world. What food is it that you will never eat? I want you to think about that. Get a food in your mind. What food is it you will never eat? A few years ago, we had some, some exchange students. Our daughters were still in high school. We had these two girls, one from Germany, one from China. And the six of us all went down to the farmer's market. <clears throat> they had a whole food case that was about five times as big as your communion table that was full of the parts of a pig. All the way, if you started on this end, there was the tail and the nose was on this end. There was every part you could imagine. I remember asking the butcher, what are the pig's ears? What do you do with those? He says, oh, you boil those and let your dog play with them. I thought, okay, at least I'm not eating that, right? 
And in our local grocery store, they have bundles of chicken feet. Have you ever seen that? <coughs> I asked the butcher, what, what do you do with chicken feet? And he says, I have no idea, but people buy them all the time. Chicken feet. Okay, so you got it. The one thing you won't like, you won't eat. You ready? For me, it's asparagus. And I'm not eating it. I'm not choosing it. I don't want it. It's slimy and disgusting. It, it, it's, not that, it's not that I'm unable to grab some from the produce aisle or get a can of it off the canned veggie aisle. I'm physically able to grab it. I'm not gonna. <clears throat> I don't want it. I'm not going to choose it. Here's a clue. If food comes in a rubber band bundle, you're not supposed to eat it. Now, in order for me to choose asparagus, well, God would have to change my tongue first, you see. I can't choose it because I don't want to choose it. Now, it's not that I'm down on asparagus. Don't get me wrong. I know it's good for you, and it's probably better for me than bread. But, and somebody must be choosing it because the grocery stores sell a ton of it. But it's not for me. I'm not going to eat it. If you serve it to me, I'm not going to try it. It's disgusting. Now, maybe, maybe it's because I was forced to eat it and pick it and eat it as a kid. It grew wild by the railroad tracks growing up, and my whole family would go down there by the tracks, and we would pick asparagus and take it home, and then I don't know what mom did to it, but we were made to eat it. I don't want it. I don't like it. I'm not having it. Now, this is what Jesus is talking about. You can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws you, unless he changes your heart. And the reason is simple. You don't want to. And just like I think it's okay for somebody else to eat asparagus, maybe you're here this morning and you think it's okay for some people to follow Jesus. There must be a reason for all those churches, right? But it's not for me. So what does it mean then for the Father to draw us? Does He gently persuade us, whispering in our ears, hoping that we'll somehow get it right? Does he draw every person like that, leaving it up to us, just the great persuader, never being forceful, never messing with our free will? No, that is most definitely not what it means for the Father to draw us. In fact, the Greek word that's in the New Testament right there in that passage is used eight times in the New Testament, and it always means dragged with force. Here's just one example from John 21. After the resurrection, Peter's out fishing, and it says he climbed aboard the boat and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Peter dragged the net ashore. Now, do you think the fish thought that jumping into the net was a good idea? I don't think so. So you see, Jesus says, you must hear the Father. That's how He drags, him to, drags us to Himself. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 
You must hear the voice of the Father through the Scriptures and from the one who has seen the Father, namely Jesus. And Jesus says you must come to Him in order to get eternal life. Beloved, the gospel's offensive to our natural inclinations. I, I know that. <clears throat> I remember the first time I heard these things as a young Christian in my 20s. I thought, it's not fair. It's not fair for God to decide to move first. But you see, it's better than fair. Because what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is you did it. If God is not sovereign in all things, then that means that you are a Christian and your neighbors are not because you are more clever than they are. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to say that. You see, the bad news is, is that if you want to be in control of your life, rejecting God's sovereign control, especially concerning salvation, then He will let you be in control. And like this crowd, you will murmur against Him all your life. And the bad news is, is that if you think you can be accepted by the Father without coming to Jesus, then you have missed the will of the Father and you will be rejected and you will miss heaven. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of thinking we're in control of our destiny. And he rose from the dead to give us eternal life and make us acceptable to the Father in heaven. Jesus was rejected so that we won't be. Isn't that good? He gives eternal life to all who hear the Father and who turn from our self-salvation and repent of our self-control and trust completely in Christ and all that He does on the cross and in the resurrection to bring us into the kingdom. So I invite you today to ask the Father for ears to hear His voice. If you're not sure about Jesus, ask the Father to give you ears to hear His voice. I invite you today to come to Jesus, to put your trust only in Him and embrace life as a heavenly love gift. Now, what difference would it make? What difference would it make in your life if you put all your hope in Christ and knew for sure that He would never reject you? What difference would it make? Well, man, could you, could you be bold and live as a risk taker, couldn't you, if you knew that you would never be rejected in heavenly places? You could take the risk to imitate Christ and denying your own self-promotion and self-interest, and you could boldly love other people, especially those annoying people that are hard to love. You know who they are. You could be a servant of love in your own community and even your neighborhood and especially at work. You could love the poor and serve them gladly going out of your way to do good. I would no longer need to serve myself if I knew that I was never rejected. You see, if you embrace the gospel and the love of Christ, then your freedom from fear of rejection would transform you so that you could love like that. Free of clinging to your own needs and your own self, which also means, it also means you could boldly forgive other people, right? I mean, people that have hurt you, 
or been against you, especially in the church and your family, anybody who's in, been in a church for over five years has experienced rejection from other people. But Jesus will never reject you. So what do you do with people who reject you? Well, if you know that you were not rejected by Christ, then you can forgive them. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive me as I forgive others. Lord, make me the standard of my own forgiveness. Now that is hardcore. And my only hope of praying that prayer and meaning it at all is to embrace the love of Christ who has forgiven me so completely and so fully and taken away my fear of rejection so that I can boldly reconcile with others who hurt me. Can you do that? I can forgive them even if they reject me. I can wish them well and pray unconditionally for the Lord's blessing in their life. Because I'm not rejected where it matters most. You know, I know you have a school here which brings conflict. And in 2009, we laid off our headmaster. I was the one person on the board who voted to keep him. He's convinced to this day that I was behind it. And he won't talk to me. Every Friday morning when I'm praying through this part of the prayer, I ask the Father, for this man's forgiveness, and I ask the Father for me not to even get aggravated about the fact that he won't forgive me. You see, even when somebody won't forgive you, it hurts. It's impossible to go through life without hurt. But if you know that you're not rejected, you see, then you can, you can forgive. And, and you know what else you could boldly do if you're not afraid of rejection? Well, I'm the traveling missionary. Here it comes. You could do evangelism. And do mission right here in your community. You could send your associate pastor, Mark Brechet, to India to go with me for two weeks. Because even though he's afraid, you're not afraid to send him, I'm sure. And so, so he could go and do evangelism with me. You see, you could share your faith with your neighbors and your friends. You could witness to them taking the risk of being invulnerable to invite people into your home, making your home a way station of hospitality and grace on purpose, intentionally, and invite them into your life in order to show them the love of Christ. You see, if I, if I know I'm loved and never forsaken, then I can do that. And you know what else I could do? I could be boldly generous. If I know that I have everything I need from Jesus and I'm never rejected, then I don't need to cling to my possessions in a prosperous country. I don't have to believe the lie that you only go around once and you need all the gusto you can get and I need to add up possessions. Jesus says, have no fear, little flock. Sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. I'm pretty sure he means that. Beloved, I, I'm like you. I only have one life to live. And so I'm determined to live it boldly for King Jesus because he will never turn me away, even if in my boldness and zeal I get it wrong. You know, one of my heroes is Jim Elliott, the great saint missionary who was murdered in South America on the mission field as a young man in the 50s. Here's what Elliott said. He, was, he is no fool 
who will give up what he cannot keep. What is it you can't keep? You can't keep your life. You're not in control. He is no fool who gives up his, what he cannot keep, his life, in order to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. You know what's really amazing about the kingdom of God and the love of the Father through his son Jesus? It's unconditional love. He loves you because he loves you. Go figure. If you were never worthy of his love in the first place, beloved, you cannot make yourself unworthy. If the basis of his acceptance of you is pure grace, pure love, because of his own work, then he will never reject you and he will always keep you because of his love, because of grace. So you want to know what Christmas morning is really like in the kingdom? The son comes down the steps and he looks under the tree and there's not one shiny red bicycle to be found. Instead, there are scores and scores, thousands upon thousands, an uncountable number of broken bicycles without a shine, with no front light, with broken axles and bent wheels with flat tires. And the father says, what do you think, son? And the son runs to embrace the father, and he says, thank you, dad. Thank you, I love you. I will restore every one of them. I will give up my life to do it so that they will all be made new and none will ever be unsuitable to ride again. I will do it for your glory and your love. You see, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank you once again for your word. It's a word of hope. It shows us our Savior, all his love for us. It shows us the promises of your kingdom that you love us and you love us and you love us still. And that's because your love itself. So Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word and hear the gospel well this morning. If there's some who are seeking that they would hear it so well as to trust in Christ today, the one person in the world, in the universe, who will never reject us. And Father, for believers long-time believers, I pray that you would renew our hope and renew our trust and make us bold in our love and our forgiveness and our generosity to others. Would you do that in us, Father? Would you reveal the glory of your grace in this place and in these people and in this church for the sake of your glory and for our good, we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.